the word. Isn't it great to just be known by, to know, be known by God? I don't know about you, but there's been several times in my life where I feel like I've been completely, 100% misunderstood. Or misrepresented. I'm not going to tell you any personal stories about that because I don't want to incriminate anyone else. But I think when we, when we start to feel that way, misunderstood, or any situation that we're in, we always like to be understood, don't we? And most of the time, let's say we're in an argument. Think about your last argument or your last five arguments or disagreements or intense fellowship, whatever you want to call it. Think about it. Most of the time, you think you're right. Right? And you're pretty convinced that your intentions are good. Right? And yet you have somebody across from you or next to you or someone you're holding hands with and you're like, they see it completely differently than I do. What is their problem? Because we don't like to be misunderstood. And the great news is this. We, we, we serve a God that understands us fully and completely. And sees the misintentions of our heart. The poor intentions. And it, in fact the evil of our hearts. And he loves us all the same. And he loves us so much that he doesn't leave us in that place, but he reworks the intentions of our hearts. We, most of the time in those situations, whether it's with the Lord or somebody else, we know that we're right. We believe that we're in the right because we see the world through a certain lens. Because what we believe is important. What we think about ourselves and what we think about the world we live in is important because it the beliefs that we have give rise to action, right? How many of you know, like we start with a belief and then at some point it turns into actions. It turns into engagement with somebody else or with the world around us or the world that God created us. I want to talk about somebody who is very much misunderstood. And it's, it's sort of a controversial subject even from this last week. It's Christopher Columbus. Love him or hate him, love him or hate him, he has something very different to say about his intentions for what he did. Everybody has an idea of Christopher Columbus, right? In 1492, right, we all have this idea that we know what he did at least, and we don't argue about what happened, right? We would not be probably sitting here in this context if it wasn't for some of what he did. We also know the outcome of what he did, for a lot of people, which became for some a new place to be that they could succeed in, and for some it was destruction of peoples, right? That's what makes him controversial. We live in a world where we look at people through the lens of history, and sometimes we get it wrong. But we look at his motivations, and we, they're assumed, right? When we, what are we taught? We're taught, some, some of us have been taught that he was going to the new world for adventure. Some people are, have taught that he went to the, this world, he came to, to, the, to the Western Hemisphere in search of gold, or in search of slaves, or in search of power. But what's really interesting is if you look at what he, he actually said about his intentions, this is really interesting. His, his, 
his coming to the new world primarily was driven by a desire to see the kingdom of God advance. And it was framed by his worldview and his millennial understanding. Christopher Columbus himself said he believed that the world in history was going to wrap up in about 100 years of his lifetime. And his, his drive was not to come necessarily just to get gold. This, these are his words. This is what he wrote. He was coming to the new world to trade what he thought was not the new world, but the old world. He thought he was going to China and to Japan to trade, to gain gold, to be able to finance a crusade to retake Jerusalem. Because in his eschatology, he believed that for Jesus to come, Jerusalem had to be in the hands of Christians. Now, we can pick that all apart. We can look at what those intentions meant and what his eschatology meant. But I'm using that as an example to say two things. One, our belief, specifically our belief in God and what, what his coming looks like, drives our lives today. We're in the middle of a series called Ready where we're looking at what does it mean to be, for us to be made ready by Jesus. And now we've talked over the last few weeks about being ready for his coming. We've talked about being ready to consume the word of God. We've talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit. We've been, we've been talk, talking about expecting his coming into the earth. We've been talking about having our clothes and our garments made white and made new so that we are ready for his return. But not only that, we need to talk about what do we think about his coming and what, how does it affect how we live today? Because it has ramifications. And if we don't think he's coming or we're not a, we don't live aware of the return of our Lord, we miss out on huge parts of what he's called us to do. But also, if we believe that he's coming on a certain timeline, it, will, it can affect our, the way we live, sometimes for the good and sometimes not for the good. And so I think it's important to say, God, how do you want us to live? So that when history records how you and I lived, and some of you are like, nobody's going to record the history of my life. Your history is being recorded by the people around you by the legacy that you leave. I literally was reading scripture this morning in Isaiah where God says he's gonna give a legacy to people that are childless who serve him. That if we as his people are willing to give our lives in his service and in relationship to him, he will leave a legacy that is more powerful than any child, children would leave in a legacy. So whether we have children and we're, we're building legacy in them or we have those around us that we serve, we are building a name for the King of Kings. And history is recording right now how we live our lives. Because how we live our lives matters, not only to ourselves and to our eternal salvation, but to the world around us. We ought to be ready to live for the Lord. No different to than if he's coming tomorrow or if he's coming in a thousand years. There ought to be some continuity in how God calls us to live and what he asks us to do because it's easy to get sidetracked. How many know it's easy to get sidetracked? We can have the purest of intentions and we can get pulled off the mission of God so how do we live in practical ways before the Lord? 
I'm glad you asked. Paul wrote a book to a man named Titus. And the book of Titus is one of the pastoral epistles. It's Paul writing to leaders pastorally. He's not writing to pastors. He wrote Timothy and Titus to these men. They weren't necessarily pastors. They were overseers in a place that he sent. He sent them, but he sent them to those places as representatives of, an, of the apostles. So there were leaders in the area. There were leaders that were raised up within the cities to pastor the, the, the church of God. But he would send representatives to those cities to, to represent him and the authority of the apostles. And Titus was one of those people. He sent him to the island of Crete. And he sent him there just for a time, and the book of, of Titus tells us this, to, to establish the churches and to encourage them in how they live. How many of you know that sometimes even churches get off in their mission? Sometimes we are unfocused in how God has called us to live. We get wrapped up in the how do we do this. Like this morning, we had a, a problem with the microphone. I don't know what you experienced in here, but I had microphones and hands waving at me and all kinds of stuff. I don't know what you experienced online. But it's easy to get distracted in those moments and say, okay, it's about doing this well. When what, what is the kingdom of God about? Is it about microphones and lenses and worship songs and good services? Or is it about his presence invading our lives? And so sometimes even churches get off track. And so Paul sends Titus to Crete to set, to set the kingdom up. And he gives them very specific instructions in the book of Titus. In, in fact, in Titus chapter 2, two, there's only three chapters in the whole book, verses 12 through 14, here's what he said. He's giving a leader instructions on how to teach the leaders and the people of God. He says, and we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. While we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He's writing to Titus to live in, in, in re the reality that Jesus is coming back. But he's saying this is how you live and this is how you instruct people to live while you're waiting. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin. To cleanse us and to make us his very own people. Again, the gospel in a nutshell. And then he says this, why? So that we can be totally committed to doing good deeds. In fact, right, right, right after that, in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, he says this. He says, remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. Now, Paul, Paul is writing to Titus. He's writing to a leader, and he's telling, them, telling him not just for him to be involved in doing good, but for him to teach others to be involved in doing good. Apparently, the people in Crete had an issue. They had false teachers that were coming in and were, were, were working people up with all kinds of myths and useless arguments and useless teaching. There were, there were people that were coming in and saying you had to, be, you had to follow the Jewish law in order for God to be pleased with you. And Paul is sending a representative to that church to say, listen, stop, cut through all the garbage, let's talk about what God expects from his people. And he delivers a powerful message. And it wasn't just for, for Titus. 
Because this letter is full of, of the message of the unbreakable link between what we believe and what we do. Between our faith and our practice. Between belief and behavior. In other words, God's saying, listen, it's important that we understand who Jesus is and who he's called us to be, so that not that we just do the right thing all the time, but because as we understand who God is and what, who Jesus has called us to be, then we can live in such a way that reflects the gospel around us. But we can't get it wrong. We can't flip it around. We can't say, I'm going to do the right things so that I believe the right things. He says, start with understanding who Jesus is. But then he starts to just list all of these people that ought to be doing good works. If you look with me real quick, we'll look at it. He's, first he tells the elders, Titus 1.8. He says, rather, he must enjoy, this is about an elder, a leader, having guests in his home, and he must love what is good, and he must live wisely and be just, <clears throat> and he must live out a devout and disciplined life. He speaks to rebellious, useless deceivers. He says, for there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others, and this is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. He speaks to older women. He says, similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. Younger woman, he says, live wisely, be pure, work in their homes to do good and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they'll not bring shame on the word of God. He speaks to Titus. You yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. He speaks to the elders. He said they should not steal. They must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they'll make teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. He speaks to everyone. Titus 3.8. This is a trustworthy saying. I want you to assist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. And then he speaks to believers in general. I love this last line. One of the last lines in the book. He says, Our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others. Then they will not be unproductive. Paul is telling Titus, listen, it's important that we not only believe the right thing, but that it results in right action. He says, do good. Always be ready to do good. And I think that's the call that God has given us as a people. Not just to do good, Right, because we all, we all think, like, none of us wake up in the morning and think, okay, what are the five bad things I'm going to do today? How are the, how are the ways I'm going to treat somebody be really awful? We all wake up thinking we're going to do good stuff, right? Hopefully. If not, we have a place for you. But let's let God define what good is. Because a lot of the stuff that we do has nothing to do with the goodness of God. Why does it matter? Because Paul says to Titus, it matters because we, it, it produces a gospel witness to those around us. And if the people of God can't give an accurate witness with their good deeds, we will lose the kingdom of God among us. We lose the ability to speak into people's lives. We lose the ability to advance the kingdom in our own lives because we're doing things other than what God has. So how about we let God define what doing good is? The first is this, and this is the most uncomfortable part of this 
scripture to me. Remind the believers. You're like, okay, what do we remind the believers to do? To submit the gov- to the government and its officers. I looked up what those words mean. Like maybe, maybe this translation got it wrong and they weren't really talking about government officials. Maybe they were talking about like church officials. Because right in the verse before, it's like teach these things, encourage the believers to do them. You have the authority to correct them when necessary. Maybe Paul is just doubling down on, t- on Titus's authority, spiritual authority within the church. Because that makes it a little more palpable because I know my intentions and motives and I think my intentions and motives are good and so I think you should listen to me because I'm a spiritual authority. Because I'm uncomfortable with the intentions as I see them of government officials around us. Am I touching something right now? And yet these words, there's no escaping from that. He's literally talking about government officials. Another, another translation translates the principalities and powers. Where else do we hear about principalities and powers? We hear about, so like even if we're like, well, yeah, but you don't understand. Our government officials are controlled by demons. Paul is, te- or Paul is telling Titus, teach people to be what? Obedient, to submit to the government and its officers. In other words, to recognize the authority of those God has placed in our lives. How we treat authority matters to the gospel. Got real quiet. How we talk about and submit to the governing authorities matters to the gospel. Well, Pastor Josh, you don't understand. We live in the state of New York, or I live in this town, and the government officials, listen, this was Crete. Did you ever hear of the word Cretan? Did you ever hear the word Cretan? You're such a little Cretan or, or big Cretan or whatever. That literally comes from this island because it was known as such a pagan place. Such a place of debauchery. Such a place of lies and deceit. And yet, here's, here's a leader of the church telling another leader of the church to instruct the people of God to respect and submit to the authority in that place. And that we should be ready always to do what's good. What does that mean? It means we ought to plan to do what's good. Want to plan for a couple minutes this morning? Let's do that. In the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, there's a really famous scripture in fact it's so famous it's on t-shirts all over the place now and it's this it's he's shown you O man what is good and what does the lord require of you but to act justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with your god it makes a great t-shirt do justice love mercy walk humbly right in fact it's such a good t-shirt that people on both sides of the political aisle claim it as their statement of being. But God has a very specific understanding of what it means to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. And he lays it out. He, Micah was a prophet to the nation of Judah and of Israel. They were split at this time, and he was speaking to them because he lived in the midst of a people that were messed up, that had taken their eyes off of God, and that were trusting in other gods and in their own strength to get the kingdom accomplished. Does that sound familiar? It's a, it, listen, we're repeating history over and over again. What we're experiencing right now in our nation, Crete was experiencing. 
What Crete was experiencing in their nation, the people of Israel and of Judah were experiencing in their time. There's nothing new under the sun. The enemy is not that creative. And so what do the people of God do? We have a timeless message of be in relationship with God and let the kingdom of God come through our good works. Micah prophesies to the people, and he's prophesying them to come back to the Lord. And he asks a question right before he says this in chapter 6, verse 8. He asks a question. He says, listen, should we offer God all these sacrifices? And he kind of ramps it up. Like, should we give him this? Should we give him that? Should we give him thousands of this? Should we give him rivers of olive oil? Is that what God wants? Does he want us to increase our worship? No, he says, I don't want you to increase your worship. What I want you to do is this. I want you to worship me by doing good works. He's shown you what is good and what does the Lord require of you. So let's break those three things down. To act justly, to do what's right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. What does it mean to do what's right? We live in a time where there's two different narratives about justice. Literally, right now, law and order and social justice. Am I, tep- am I stepping on too many toes here? See, here's the thing. God has called us not to be representatives of a political party, but to be representatives of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so I'm going to talk about things that might irritate our political wind-up right now. One side or the other. But we need to talk about what God thinks so that we can preserve not only the prophetic voice of the church but the prophetic voice of his people. And so we have this narrative right now. We need law and order or we need social justice. We need the bad guys to be punished or we need people to have their needs met. And there's two different definitions of justice. But how about God's definition of justice? When we look at justice in the word of God, when we look at this uh, command to do justly first of all we have to understand it's a command to actually do something in matthew chapter 3 verses 8 through 10 john the baptist said this the one who was the forerunner of the king he says don't just say to each other we're safe and we're descendants of abraham that means nothing for i tell you god can create children of abraham from these very stones sorry i missed the beginning of that it says, first, prove by the way that you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say that we're safe. Even now the axe of God's judgment is pointed, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. In other words, there were a people at that time who were saying, we're secure, we're of the right lineage, we're God's special people. We belong to the right political party. We belong to the right church. We belong to the right movement. We belong to the right side of history. However you want to say it, they were secure in their identity with that. And John the Baptist was saying, stop. Your security is not in your identity outside of God. And the way that you prove that you are on God's side is by what you do. And so we can't just believe the right thing. We have to actually, if we're going to be doing what God has, if we're going to plan to do what God has called us to do, we have to actually make provision to actually do something. It's not just that we think right, it's that we do right. But what does it mean to do justice? What is biblical justice? Biblical justice is not just retribution or punitive, but restorative. What does that mean? Think about when your children fight. Most of the time, my children fight not to win, but to hurt the other one. 
Like, they'll play that, that zero-sum game. Like, I don't care if I don't get anything, as long as you don't get anything too. Right? Or it's my, it's one of my, it's my daughter's birthday weekend. And when I mean birthday weekend, I mean the whole weekend. And she knows it. But the other children are watching the youngest get her birthday weekend, and they're very, they're very um, analytical. I didn't get that. I didn't get that. I didn't get that. They, and they've just, they've forgotten, honestly, what it was like when they were that age. And justice to them is that they get exactly the same thing as their little sister gets right now. Right? That's justice. That's not a concept of biblical justice. We all have a concept of justice in us. We want people to have to follow the rules and be in trouble when they should be in trouble. And I get what I get and you get what you get. And it it has to be the same. That's not the idea of justice. The idea of justice, biblical justice, is restorative. It's to take that which has been stolen by the enemy or stolen by another human being and restore back to that person the original intent that God had for their lives. So it has to do primarily with restoration of relationship. First of all, restorative relationship to God. Every time God is calling for justice, he's calling for people to be restored in relationship to him. And second, it's to, 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 to restore relationship to one another. That's why when Jesus talks about confronting your brother or sister in sin he doesn't say confront them because that's the right thing to do or the church needs to be pure he says confront them so that you might win your brother back that's the goal of confrontation towards justice is the restoration of relationship and not only the restoration of relationship with him and with others but to the world around us to bring back to original intent what god had for us and for each other for him, with us, and for the world around us. He wants to take us back to when, he had it, when we had it good with him. In fact, his justice, his coming again to restore justice is to restore the earth back to its inter- original intent so that he could be with his people and we could be with him. His intention, his desire, is that the whole world would come to him because he's good. God set us right and gives us a righteousness that is not of our own. And he commissions us to act out of that righteousness. He commissions us to invite others into that righteousness. The word that is translated here, do right or do justice, has to do not just with like a, a law proceeding, but it has to do with the rightness of God, his determination, his rulings, his parameters. Justice starts with us recognizing that you and I can be unjust. Because we all have a standard that looks to getting our needs for justice met. But the, cost, the gospel calls us to be other-focused to be wanting justice for others. The second thing God calls us to is to love mercy. Deep down, we all love seeing people get their comeuppance. I love that word. Like we love what goes around comes around, right? My my son, I don't think he, he's brilliant, but I don't think he coined this. Uh, He says, when, when, 
his brother gets hurt when he's annoying him, my older son says, stupid games, stupid prizes. Right? We, and we kind of like that, don't we? Like, we'll, we'll watch those stupid videos on, on YouTube for hours of people doing stupid stuff and getting stupid prizes, right? Serves them right. But God calls us to live in a different way. He calls us to love mercy. In fact, God delights in showing mercy. Micah 7, a little bit later in that prophetic book, there's, where is there another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people? You'll not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love or mercy. We all need mercy, right? We all like to think that we embrace mercy, but how do we love mercy? In fact, this word mercy is usually translated loving kindness or faithfulness in reference to the Lord's faithful loving kindness towards us and towards his people. God's mercy was not deserved. And so the mercy that he calls us to show towards others probably won't be deserved. Because if, if it was deserved, it wouldn't be mercy. God's mercy cannot be demanded. Mercy experience, therefore, should be mercy shared. Just like we can't demand God's mercy, we can't withhold it once we've experienced it. God's mercy is costly. What did his mercy cost him? Everything. Sharing his mercy will cost us. God's mercy is real. It's not just a one-time thing. It's not just happenstance. It's a real outworking of his love for people. And that's why God calls us not just to demonstrate mercy, but to love mercy. He's calling us to be like him, to have that mercy developed within our hearts so that it's an outcropping of who we really are because it's who he is poured out in us. The last thing he asks us to do is to walk humbly. To walk humbly. What does it mean to walk humbly? Does it mean that we always walk around looking like downtrodden, broken people? No. Does it mean we walk around like Conor McGregor? Like, I got this. Here I am, world. What does it mean to walk humbly? The first part of that definition is to walk humbly with our God. You and I cannot walk humbly apart from a relationship with the Lord. We can't do, do justice. We can't love mercy apart either. We can't walk humbly a, a, apart from him. Andrew Murray wrote an incredible book called Humility. I just want to quote a couple things that he said. Humility is the place of entire dependence on God. It's the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature and the root of every virtue. And so pride or the loss of this humility is the root of every sin and evil. A faithful servant may be wiser than his master and yet retain the true spirit and posture of the servant. The humble man looks upon every, the feeblest, the unworthiness, as a child of God. 
and honors him and prefers him in honor as the son of a king. The highest glory of the creature is in being only a vessel to receive and enjoy and show forth the glory of God. It can do this only as it is willing to be nothing in itself that God may be all. Water always fills the first and lowest places. The lower and the emptier a man lies before God, the speedier and the fuller will be the inflow of the divine glory. These are not just great sayings. It's not like Andrew Murray was sitting there with his legs crossed just spouting out things. It's not like God in calling us to walk humbly is asking us to just be a bunch of monks that don't think a whole lot about ourselves. What he's saying is this. He's calling us to a divine walk with him. How many of you became humble the minute you turned to God? Like, you, right away, you are just the humblest thing in the world. Or how many of us, God is working out humility in us over time? How many of you think you have that humility thing down? And then the next week you discover you did not have that humility thing down at all. That's because God is calling us to walk with him in humility. To learn day by day and step by step what it means to be empty of ourselves. Not so that we can walk around downtrodden, but so that we can be filled with him. Because our humility welcomes the glory of God. Our humility welcomes the presence of God. Would you close your eyes with me this morning? God, would you make us ready? Ready to do good works that you'd prepared in advance for us. May we not be a people that just walk around with good intentions. But God, would you give us in all of your creativity, in all of your calling, in all of your giftedness, in all of the resources that you have given to us, in all of the truth, in light of all the truth that we have about who you are, and all of the truth that you're bringing into our lives. God, would you cause us to be a people who are ready at all times to do what's right, to do what's good, to be under your authority, to be in obedience to you, and to walk in such a way that your kingdom is made real in our lives and it's extended to others for your glory. In the name of Jesus. Would you stand for reminders? Giving is contact free in the back or you can check out what's on the screen about the apps and other ways of giving online. Thank you for your faith.